Get the liquor and the weed out You're gonna need it without a doubt Cause on Nightcaps we watch movies And I can tell you that tonight's gonna be a doozy We got mushrooms and they're dancing So get wasted and start prancing If you're sober, well there's the door a certain mouse was right in saying you're a bore. However, if you aren't into sympathies, then Walt Disney shares his sympathy. It's our show, you bunch of vultures. God forbid we watch something that's actually cultured. I got a secret. Can you keep it? If you tell Matt, you will get it. But although this features an oldie. Some say that without it there would be no dopey. Alright then, let's get this rolling. I'm quite over this Tchaikovsky trolling. Cause tonight on the bill it's Fantasia. And by the end we hope you don't ask for euthanasia. Ho everyone! Welcome to the latest episode of Nightcaps at the Theater, your favorite podcast where they watch movies. Well, tonight, oh, they're gonna watch Fantasia, and uh, I highly recommend you come inebriated if you get my drift. <laughs> Leave the family at home. <laughs> but anyway, thank you for sticking around and... <coughs> Is that my voice? Is that my voice? <laughs> Ass podcast, or like the kids like to say, the WAP podcast. Oh huh? no! Huh? <laughs> Are I we not, I, millennials yet? I will not be doing anything indicative <laughs> of what that title would represent. What? It's just an anagram. <laughs> uh, well, you're listening to Nightcaps at the Theater, where we watch movies. Me and my lovable co-host. I am Jonathan Kwiatkowski, or you can call me by my prison name, Little Two. <laughs> I am. And who uh, else is here? I am Matt, the drive-in dropout, Cabrera. Happy to be here, folks. Oh, well, yeah, it's a sad story. Yeah. Well, There's well, a lot of drive-ins opening up lately. No, there definitely are. I uh, I actually got tickets to the Walmart drive-in that they're doing at Linden. Um, I managed to score a ticket for Friday night, last night, and Saturday night tonight. But um, you know, we decided we don't want to risk it. We don't want to go around Walmart people. In the midst of this global pandemic where nobody's paying attention to how things are supposed to be working. So we figured for E.T. and Wonder Woman, eh, we're good. We could watch that on Peacock. (laughs) But then uh, I I did have a cousin who attended the session last night. And she said, um, well, it was pretty good. The cards were socially distanced. Everyone was being pretty safe. Um, The screen was a little small, but it was fine. And then uh, she, oh, she got a handful of free goodies as well that Walmart was popping up, popping up, hand, handing out. And um, 
yeah, they were even filmed because uh, apparently Walmart was filming the event, so they had to sign consent forms. And um, last but not least, uh, last night they were showing E.T. And it appears, I'm not certain about this, I haven't found any reports to corroborate this fact, but it is possible that Drew Barrymore herself was in attendance. And I, I believe that wow. is, you know, since it was E.T., I, I believe she plays the title character. Um, I haven't seen it, actually. So. Yeah, of Little Girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she, and she plays uh, the extra terrestrial. Yeah, yeah. So uh, she she likes her some Reese's Pieces. Yep. And, um, yeah. And so I don't know if that actually happened, but I did <laughs> confirm that she would make an appearance at one of these events. And I do believe that she was on, uh, in New York uh, yesterday. And two days ago, promoting some stuff on the Today mm. Show. So the stars seem to have lined up or aligned, um, and it's very possible that we, uh, well, we, wow. we we missed out. But <laughs> I'm okay. I barely know who Drew Barrymore is. <laughs> I, I probably shouldn't be hosting fire starter. She is a Charlie's Angel. <laughs> and not my not my Charlie's Angels. I, I only watch the Elizabeth Banks one. <laughs> not the- with uh mm. i don't even know who those people are <laughs> yeah that movie was uh questionable slash objectionable slash should not have mm. been made yeah well speaking of movies that should not have been made oh don't tell <laughs> at me least in, at least in modern times um i would feel like this isn't one of those movies in fact i feel this is a very important movie um I flip-flop there, but, uh, you know, I'm worried that this may be a little bit out there. This is a choice. This is something both cultural and cerebral for our little podcast audience. Um, Yeah, something that's been in the the bank for a while. So let me give you your hints again. You've been in the old spank bank? (laughs) Well, for some people, I guess, it could go in that bank, but... (laughs) Yes. Uh, Here are your hints again, Matt, that I hope you stewed on. So the first one is I highly recommend viewing this film under the influence because it just makes the viewing experience a little bit better and relates somewhat to the history of this film in the 70s. Okay. Um, Okay, I I know it. I, I, I got a good guess as to what it is. All right. I think you know. Um, This is the oldest pick on the podcast yet. Um, and without this film, Dolby might not have been a thing. So those are my three hints so far. If you think you've got a guess, go ahead and guess. Well, uh, you have mentioned the the illicit substance taking before really enhancing your enjoyment of a movie. So I'm going to have to guess that it is, mm-hmm. uh, what is it, 2016's or 2017's Trolls? Is, no. is that what we're watching? Unfortunately, no, it is not the oldest movie on the podcast, being that it only came out in 2016. I will give you the year. (laughs) It is 1940 when this film came out. Huh. Well, (laughs) thankfully, I know it's not uh, Mm. Gone with the Wind because that was 39. So, yeah, it was one year after. That's a a bullet dodged. Um, um, I will say this is a animated movie. Is it? It is. Oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> Who was making animated movies in 1940? I could only think of one man. 
Oh. Um, weird. I know it's not a. It's not Snow White and the Seven Doofuses. That was 1939 again. 39 was apparently a great year, and then I have no mm. clue what happened in 40. <laughs> but I think I know what the second mm. Disney feature was. Uh, do mm-hmm. I? Because I I was watching them in order, but. Mm-hmm. But I remember you saying it's kind of long. Oh, it's long. It's two hours. Hmm. There. Okay. I I know what it is. Right. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I think these two films came out in the same year. Perhaps I was thinking. Well, the second Disney film is Pinocchio, but the next yes. Disney film to Little Puppet is- Made of Pine got an ass so mighty fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm surprised with a tagline like that that it's not our pick. Um, <laughs> I wish it was. But anyway, I know the next film in Disney's repertoire, thanks to Disney Plus, is not that I'm looking at it right now. It's just that I started watching them in order, and I was like, "This is actually the film that made me quit watching them in order." Because I was like, "God, I can't get through this." We are watching, yikes, Fantasia. <laughs> We are watching Fantasia, Matt. Woo! Disney's third animated picture from well, 1940 and the movie that you could not make it through. Well, you know what? Maybe maybe it'll be different. I do have headphones on. I That'll help, perhaps. <laughs> do you have your paraphernalia? If, if the paraphernalia, like I asked? I can't afford that shit. We're in a downturn. And it's not legal, of course. <laughs> we are. If Murphy would legalize... Yeah, I know. Well, you know, fucking, booze is legal. If he would legalize fucking pot, I think coronavirus would not stand a chance. We would be fine. Theaters could be open. Yeah, we'd all be at home. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to bring that up on my conservative <laughs> talk show on the morning drive on yeah. Monday. 101.5NJ. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, but we're watching Fantasia. Uh, this happens to be one of my favorite movies. Uh, Disney... Uh, realm wise uh, I remember watching this one a lot as a kid and I don't know why I was a very strange child and not being bored by it mm, weird yeah. I weird, was one of weird. those yeah, Einstein baby kids I guess that was just like <laughs> I'm gonna listen to classical music you're one of those um, idiot savants yeah, you're an I anomaly guess. I guess, but um, uh, this has always been a, a movie after my own heart, and it has a ri- rich uh, history that spans four to five pages of notes. So. Yeah, I was going to say, what the hell are our notes going to be for this <laughs> episode? What are we going to do? Don't worry, I, I mean, got I'm them. fine. Yeah, we I got, we got eight take... little animated segments to look at. This is going to take 15 minutes. What are we going to do? Describe the clouds as they go by? oh lord you're gonna be eating those words matthew cabrera because i've got more notes than ever on this podcast i think i may hate the notes more than the movie this time i i truly agree with that statement but Ugh. it's my pick and i got to pick it and i want to watch <laughs> so suck an egg you had to do this in the middle of a quarantine. Our spirits are already so down. Well, to be fair, you could walk away from the screen for three hours and probably just be that's true. Well caught up. Yeah, that's a good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm not going to be focusing you on the material. I'll be listening attentively. All I mean, right. Maybe I'll like it this time. 
All right, well, let me get these notes over with. I'm sorry, I've got a lot of background notes, so feel free to mute your mic and go make some popcorn and finish the dishes <laughs> as I um start our background information. Wow. So Fantasia is a 1940. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll make it as quick and as painful as I can. <laughs> uh, Fantasia is a 1940 American animated film produced by Walt Disney and released by Walt Disney Productions. With story direction by Joe Grant and Dick Humor. Yes, that is his name, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and production supervisor, who is uh, Ben Sharpstein. It is the third Disney animated feature film. The film consists of eight animated segments set to pieces of classical music conducted by Leopold Stokowski, seven of which are performed by the Philadelphia Orchestra. Music critique and composer Deems Taylor acts as the film's master of ceremonies, providing a live-action introduction to each of the animated segments. In 1936, Walt Disney himself felt that Disney Studios' star character, Mickey Mouse, needed a boost in popularity. <laughs> he decided to feature the mouse in The Sorcerer's Apprentice, a deluxe cartoon short based on the poem written by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe and set in the orchestra uh, orchestral piece by Paul Dukas, inspired by the original tale. Disney had been doing this since Silly Symphonies, but wanted something with more tone and true visual storytelling. Disney happened to meet Leopold Stokowski, conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra since 1912 at Chasen's Restaurant in Hollywood, and talked about his plans for the shorts. Stokowski recalled that he did not like the music, or he did like the music, sorry, uh, and was happy to collaborate <laughs> on the project and offered to conduct the piece at no cost. Uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice was to be promoted as a special and rented to theaters as a unique film outside of the Mickey Mouse cartoon series. As production costs ran to a then staggering $125,000. I've got more than that in credit card debt. <laughs> it's true. Uh, it became clear to Disney and his brother Roy, who managed the studio's finances, that the short could never earn such a sum back on its own. But Disney saw this trouble as the form uh, in the form of an opportunity. This was the birth of a new concept, a group of separate numbers, regardless of their running time. Uh, went together in a single presentation would turn out to make a little bit more money for it. Something novel and of high quality. Um, Disney claimed that his music tastes were instinctive and untrained, so he left the job of choosing the music for the segments for this film to Joe Grant, Dick Humor, and Dick Humor, who gathered a preliminary selection of music along with Stokowski. Deems Taylor, to, um, he was left to decide what was for um, the best and like give the final pass at these musical numbers. Uh, numerous choices were discarded as talks continued, including Moto Perpetuo by Niccolo Paganini, uh, Prelude in G Minor, and Troika by Sergei Rachmaninoff, and the rendition of The Song of the Flea by Musogorsky. Uh, some vague cut ideas slash material would appear in the sequel Fantasia 2000, which many people champion as the slightly better movie, but I didn't want to pick it. <laughs> oh, interesting. It's shorter, it's got uh, snappier numbers, more to talk about, but no, I wanted a nice slow burn. Because... I, always, I always thought it was worse. I didn't know it was better. Wow, really? That Rhapsody in Blue number just makes the movie for me. Hmm. Hmm. Well, no, I didn't watch it. That's why. Oh, yeah. oh well, there we go. <laughs> I was so scarred by the first one, I dared not touch <laughs> the second. The second. Uh, the new feature continued to be known as the concert feature or musical feature as late as November 1938. Hal Horn, a pub publicist for Disney's film distributor, Archeo Radio Pictures, wished for a different title and gave the suggestion Philharmonic Concert, and that's Philharmonic with a F-I-L-M instead of Philharmonic Concert. 
uh, Stuart uh. Buchanan then held a contest at the studio for a title that produced almost 1,800 suggestions, including Bach to Stravinsky and Bach and Hybrowski uh, by Stokowski, <laughs> which these aren't good titles. <laughs> oh, I like it. Yes, it's fun. Bach it's and Hybrowski by Stokowski. That's great. <laughs> All right. Still, the favorite among the film supervisors was Fantasia, long before her appearance on American Idol. So thanks to this little film. <laughs> I, I actually watched American Idol that. like uh, somewhat religiously. Uh, from... Yeah. Oh, back in the day? Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, for that um, season From the beginning of its yeah, development. I wanted her to win. Good. You made a good choice. Um, from the beginning of its development, Disney expressed the greater importance of music in Fantasia compared to his past work. In our ordinary stuff, our music is always under action, but on this, we're supposed to be picturing this music, not the music fitting our story. Disney had hoped that the film would bring classical music to the people who, like himself, had previously walked out on this kind of stuff. So, <laughs> maybe I could culture you a little bit, mm. <laughs> You can know. try. Many have tried. Cookie. It's never worked. Yeah. Um, over 1,000 artists and technicians were used in the making of Fantasia, which features more than 500 animated characters. Segments were colored keyed scene by scene, so the colors in a single shot would harmonize being uh, between preceding and following ones. Before a segment narrative pattern was complete, an overall color scheme was designed to the general mood of the music and pattern to correspond with the development of the subject matter. The studio's character model department would also sculpt three-dimensional clay models so the animators could view their subjects from all angles. Uh, the live-action scenes were filmed using the three-color technicolor process, while the animated segments were shot in successive yellow, cyan, and magenta exposed frames. The different pieces of film were then spliced together to form a complete print. Um, boop, 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 let me see. Cost for this was about $200,000 or equivalent to $3.7 million in 2019. Hmm. So big bucks back in the day, uh, <laughs> though it was not exactly known how to achieve this goal. Engineers at Disney and RCA investigated many ideas and tests with very, uh, various equipment setups to make the sound sound pristine. Uh, the collaboration led to the development of Fantasound, a pioneering stereophonic surround sound system, which innovated some processes widely used today, including simultaneous multi-tracking recording, overdubbing, and noise reduction. So I threw that in for you. <laughs> Without this, there well, would be no Dolby. It does increase my interest in the film. Maybe. Oh, oh. <laughs> music to my ears. <laughs> Yes. On January 18th, 1939, Stokowski signed an 18-month contract with Disney to conduct the remaining pieces with the Philadelphia Orchestra. Recording began that April and lasted for seven weeks at the Academy of Music, the orchestra's home, which was chosen for its excellent acoustics. In the recording sessions, 33 microphones were placed around the orchestra that captured the music into eight optical sound recording machines placed in the hall's basement. Each one represented an audio channel that focused on a different section of instruments, cellos and basses, violins, brass, violas, and woodwinds and timpani. Uh, the seventh channel was a combination of the first six, while the eighth provided an overall sound of the orchestra at a distance. A ninth channel provided a click track function for the animators to time their drawings to the music. What's cool is that Disney paid for everything and everyone, totaling almost $18,000, and that time, which is probably somewhere around a million, right? I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't do math. That sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, Fanta Sound, aka Matt's Bread and Butter, developed in part by Disney engineer Willem Garrity, employed two projectors running at the same time, with one containing the picture film with a mono soundtrack for backup purposes. The other ran a sound film that was mixed from the nine tracks recorded at the Academy. Way more complicated and in detailed, and they felt, um, people have reviewed it, and they felt like the sound was traveling around the theater. So, back in the day, I guess it's like, it's coming right at me. (laughs) (laughs) Damn, you know what? I I wouldn't hate a re-release of this in Dolby Uh, Atmos. With the original, yeah, it's in my notes. Fantastical. It would, it would. Uh, Dolby Who is what I put down. Uh, the illusion of sound traveling across the speakers was achieved with a device named the Panpot, which directed the predetermined movement of each audio channel with the control track. Mixing of the soundtrack required six people to operate the various pan shots in real time, while Stokowski directed each level and pan change, which was marked on his musical score. To monitor recording levels, Disney used oscilloscopes with color differenti- differentiation to minimize eye fatigue. Um, this film is also known for having many theatrical runs and re-releases, and I just found that history a little bit interesting. This film had three big runs in American history, the first being 1940 to 1941. Initially, RKO saw this movie as far too expensive a risk to support, two hours and five minutes just too long for an audience to handle a cartoon, let alone a solely musical, classical-based one. Uh, Disney, ever the marketing genius, decided it should follow the roadshow format, which would later benefit newer Hollywood musicals. Basically, the roadshow format is you pick a lavish theater house, you deck it out up to the nines, you up the cost of the tickets and concessions, and give the audiences a true theatrical um, experience. Uh, Disney hired film salesman Irving Ludwig uh, to manage the first 11 engagements, who was given specific instructions regarding each aspect of the film's presentation, including the setup of outside theater marquees and curtains and lighting cues. Patrons were taken to their seats by staff hired and trained by Disney and were given a program booklet illustrated by Gyo Fujikawa. The first 11 roadshows earned a total of $1.3 million by April 1941, and the $85,000 in production and installation cost of a single Fantasound setup, along with the theaters having to be leased, forced Disney to extend their loan limits. Hmm. Um, the onset of the Second War World, World War, sorry, I can't talk, I'm drinking a little bit too much <laughs> already, prevented plans for a potential release in Europe, normally the source as much as 45% of the studio's income. All but one of the Fantasound setups were dismantled and given to the war effort. The combined average receipts uh, from each roadshow was about $325,000, which placed Fantasia at an even greater loss than Pinocchio. Hold on. What what was the war going to do with these Fantasound setups on the front lines? You had to sell your scrap. (laughs) (laughs) You got to donate to the war effort. When are they going to blast uh, Flight of the Bumblebee? What's a Fantasound? No, or, they had to dismantle uh, them. And, and... <laughs> Neither of those are in this movie, but sure. <laughs> um... I'm just imagining people with like big Mickey Mouse surround sound <laughs> setups trying to attack Nazi soldiers. It's fantastic. We're going to bore them to death. <laughs> <laughs> Matt's like, oh, I'm leaving. I'm bored. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh... They're just playing this classical music. (laughs) I don't get paid enough for this. (laughs) 
the second run from 1942 to 1963 resulted in a lot of cuts to the film and score. Disney refused to cut the film himself, which was done placing uh, nearly an hour shorter uh, film on double bills. A reissue in 1946 restored the film to one hour, 55 minutes. Oh, why? <laughs> the typical cut going forward. By 1955, the original sound negatives were deteriorating. And using the one remaining Fantasound system, a three-track stereo copy was transferred across noise-free telephone wires onto magnetic film at the RCA facility in Hollywood. For more matte vapors, Disney also retooled the Cinemascope format, a la Superscope for 1956, in which the projector featured an automatic control mechanism designed by Disney engineers that was coupled to a variable anamorphic lens, which allowed the picture to switch between its Academy standard aspect ratio of 1 to 33 to 1 to the wide ratio of 2 to 35 to 1. Did I say that right? Yeah, I think so. In 20 mm-hmm. seconds without a break in the film. Yeah, you so, did. wow. Look at that, Matt. Yeah. Uh, this reissue I garnered like some criticism from viewers. Yeah. <laughs> you like the criticism. <laughs> no, no. Uh, oh, <laughs> you like the aspect ratio. <laughs> Indeed. Says the one who goes to theaters to measure their size. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, This reissue garnered some criticism from viewers as the widescreen format led to the cropping and reframing of the images. I can simultaneously feel Matt's joy and rage during this moment. Um, (laughs) The third run, 1969 to 1990, Fantasia started to make a profit of its $2.28 million budget. In 1969, tanks mainly to none other than stone... Oh, thanks, mainly to none other than stoners... Teenagers and college kids, the film was promoted with a psychedelic-style advertising campaign, Mm, and it became popular among teenagers and college students who reportedly appreciated it as a psychedelic experience. Uh, Animator Ollie Johnston recalled that young people thought we were on a trip and we made it. Every time we go to talk at a school or something, they'd ask us what we were on. Uh, the release is also noted for the controversial removal of four scenes in, from the Pastoral Symphony, uh, over-racial stereotyping, and more information on that to come when we watch the film. Um, this run also had the studio decide to replace the Stokowski soundtrack and have it digitally re-recorded in Dolby Stereo with conductor Erwin Kostel. Kostel directed a 121-piece orchestra and 50-voice choir for the recording that took place over 18 sessions at CBS Studio Center in Los Angeles. And it cost $1 million Jesus. to produce. Uh, the, the new recording corrected a two-frame lag and projection caused by the recording techniques used at the time the film was made. This cut also made the narration briefer as the studio felt the modern audience had become more sophisticated and knowledgeable about music, to which I, I say... Yeah, I say, sure, Jan. Uh, Bring on the weed. With this run, Fantasia became the first theatrical feature film presented in digital stereo sound. Finally, in 1990, for its 50th anniversary reissue, Fantasia underwent a two-year restoration process that began with a six-month search to locate the original negatives, which had been in storage since 1946, and piece them together. This was the first time since then that a print of the film had been prepared using the original negative and not a copy. The new print was formed (laughs) that was identical to the 1946 version with Taylor's introductions restored, but with a new end credit sequence added. Each of the 535,680 frames were restored by hand with an untouched print 
from 1951 used for guidance on the correct colors and tone. Theaters that agreed to screen the film were required to install specific sound equipment and presented in the original one uh, to 33 to 1.33 to one aspect ratio. Uh, the 1990 reissue also had the Stokowski soundtrack restored, which underwent digital remastering by Terry Porter, who worked with the 1955 magnetic soundtrack. He estimated 3,000 pops and hisses were removed from the recording, and it was released on October 5th, 1990. This reissue grossed 25 million domestically. So good. Um, back in the day, uh, Critics loved this movie, mostly. Uh, Edwin Schalter of the Los Angeles Times said it was caviar to the general, ambrosia and nectar to the intelligentsia. And I've never heard a more pretentious statement in my life. (laughs) That's just great. Oh, yeah. Um, Others claim that this motion picture made motion picture history. Fantasound was highly praised, and I wish we could go back and hear it as it was intended, aside from all the racism and war, you know, that existed during that time period. Um, some people also had a few negative reviews to offer this film. They said it was a, a little bit too highbrow for the time period, and some people just didn't get it. Um, other negative reactions were political in nature, especially since the film's release happened at the time when Nazi Germany reigned supreme in Europe. One review the film uh, of the film in this manner, written by Dorothy Thompson of the New York Herald Tribune on November 25th, 1940, was especially harsh. Thompson claimed that she left the theater in a condition bordering on a nervous breakdown because the film was a remarkable nightmare. Thompson went on to compare the film to rampant Nazism, which she described as the abuse of power and the perverted betrayal of the best instincts. Thompson also claimed that the film depicted nature as being titanic while man was only a moving uh, lichen on the stone of time. She concluded that the film was cruel, brutal, and brutalizing, and a negative caricature of the decline of the West. In fact, Thompson claimed that she was so distraught by the film that she even walked out of it before she saw the last two segments, Night on Bolt Mountain and Ave Maria, because she did not want to be the subject to any more of the film's brutalization. This was before Chernabog was even on screen, and I can only imagine my reaction would have been similar as the devil is scary in that (laughs) segment. But just... To take that review and compare it to like today's reviews or my music reviews where I'm like, it's good. Um, <laughs> it was a different time. It's yeah, crazy. That's insane. I, if anything, everything that she said made me appreciate the movie more. <laughs> you would actually go out and see it now. Yeah. Um, today, Fantasia holds a 94% rating based on a sample of 52 reviews with an average rating of 8.61 out of 10 on Rotten Tomatoes. On Metacritic, the film has a weighted average score of 96 out of 100 based on 18 critics. Jesus. Uh, indicating universal acclaim. So there we go, Matt. <laughs> uh, Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times rated the film four out of four stars and noted that throughout Fantasia, Disney pushes the edges of the envelope. Disney and Stokowski won a special award for the film at the 1940 New York Critics' Choice Awards. Uh, Fantasia was the subject of two Academy Academy Honorary Awards on February 26, 1942. One for Disney, William Garrity, John N.A. Hawkins, and the RCA Manufacturing Company for their outstanding contribution to the advancement of the use of sound in motion pictures through the production of Fantasia and the other to Stokowski and his associates for their unique achievement in the creation of a new form of visualized music in Walt Disney's production, Fantasia, thereby widening the scope of the motion picture's 
as entertainment and as an art form. There was also an official sequel in 2000 with Fantasia 2000, but that's <laughs> a tale for a different time. All right, my initial notes are done. 30 minutes in, not bad on time. Phew. All right, Matt, we got to talk a bit. So why do you not like this movie? Why, why, why isn't your jam? I don't know. It could be the circumstances in which I watch them. Um, it was a weeknight. I had work the next day. I had work that day. It's two hours. <laughs> I didn't really want to spend that precious time watching colors on the screen. <laughs> and who knew we were going to waste that time together again today? I think, you know, now it's a Saturday. I'm a bit more relaxed. <laughs> now you're wasting your Saturday. Six <laughs> hours, I'll never get back. No, it's I. it could be okay. Um, and I have my headphones in. I like my sound setup. It's not, it's okay. I, it's, I'm not using my, my normal uh, daily driver headphones that are amazing. I'm, I'm falling back on my above average headphones. But either way, it's, I'm looking, I hope the sound is reflected well in my headphones, at least much more than it was on the TV speakers that I was using before. Um, and this is something I wanted to revisit, especially when I got, when I finally get my hands on my projector and surround sound setup. Mm. But, um, well, I can't <laughs> say, I, I, I don't hate it. And I might not even dislike it. I just think you have to be very um, careful with, your approach to this movie you have to you have to be dedicated to watching it you have to have the right mindset before you jump in yeah and a lot of booze <laughs> yes that is very true and lsd and any paraphernalia that you may want to use when watching this movie anything that <laughs> mr walt disney hands to you and he says just well, go I to the bathroom and take this yeah well i i find it interesting that disney actually attempted to do this like as he described himself, he's usually the type of person to walk out on this kind of shit. Yeah. So, I mean, to take that risk, and as we'll learn later in my detailed plot synopsis notes, which, oh, oh boy, can't wait to entertain you with those. <laughs> um, he wanted to make this kind of something that was constant in the Disney franchise with music as it kept getting more modernized. Um, but this didn't take off, unfortunately, but I would love to see, like like a Fantasia every few years. I think that would be a really cool thing to see how animation and music can go hand in hand. And that is you know, true. Maybe different cultures can cross boundaries through our overall acceptance of music. Right. Yeah. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> that would be dope. <laughs> um, well, without further ado, let's get this symphony started. Strap in, <laughs> put on your Mickey mouse ears and pray. <laughs> Because you're going to need it. Thank you. 
Welcome back, audience, to another episode of Nightcaps of the Theater, where we just watched Fantasia. And Matt, what did you think? Uh, it wasn't too bad. Um, it, it was long. No. Some parts were more, yeah. less necessary than others. But overall, yeah, I had a pretty okay time. Yeah, I'm. I feel that too. I think the whole bottle of wine that I drank during that whole Fantasia segment really brought out the Fantasia ness of it all. Oh yeah, that and, would help. Yeah, um, I think that if we legalized a certain drug in New Jersey, that would help a little bit more. <laughs> but this is one of my favorites because I just love the theatricality of it all. It's so good. It's like music and animation. What more do you need? Well. <laughs> you don't want me to answer that no not yet i guess um so some personal notes um like i said i have a lot of notes on fantasia um basically it's plot summaries and what's going on behind the scenes and i just want to get your two cents on it so some personal notes okay. disney had wanted fantasia to be an ongoing project with a new edition being released every few years i said mm-hmm. that this would be my dream I think that's a good goal to show, shoot for. I think that would have been a cool thing to see. Yeah, I think that does sound pretty cool. I would um, I would have liked to see that. His plan was to substitute one of the original segments with a new one as it was completed, so audiences would always see a new version of the film. From January mm. to August 1941, story material was developed based on additional musical works, including Ride of the Valkyries by Richard Wagner, The Swan of Tunela by Jean Sibelis, Invitation to the Dance by Carl Mario von Weber, and Polka and Feud from Schwanda the Bagpiper by Jaramir Weinberger, and Flight of the Bumblebee by Nikolai Rimsky. What was that? Schwanda the Bagpiper? It was, um, hold on, let me see. Yeah, Schwanda the Bagpiper. Is that the artist? or No, that's the title of the work by oh. Jeremy Weinberger. Oh, I would have loved that to be the name of the composer. <laughs> Schwander the Bagpiper. Schwander the Bagpiper. <laughs> and Flight of the Bumblebee by Nikolai Rimsky-Karasikov, uh, which was later adapted into the Bumblebee Boogie segment of Melody Time, 1948, one of my favorites. Hmm. Uh, the film's disappointing initial box office performance and the USA's entry into the World War II brought the end to these plans. Oh. Uh, Deems Taylor prepared introductions for The Firebird by, by Stravinsky, La Mer by Claude Debussy, and Adventures in Perambulator. Perambulator. Sure. <laughs> by John Alden Carpenter, Don Quixote by Richard Strauss, and pictures at an exhibition by Moriskowski, uh, to have them for the future in case we decide to make any one of them. Hmm. Um, another segment, Debussy's Claire de Lune, which, Matt, if you don't know Claire de Lune, you're no, not a no. music fan. I, I know that one. I love it. I get uh, yeah. Zelda vibes from it. It's used in everything from trailers to video games nowadays. Yeah, Kamasi so. Washington has a good version of it, too. It's extremely thing. Well, anyway, there was a segment devoted to Claire de Lune was developed as part of the film's original program. After being completely animated, it was cut of the final film to shorten the lengthy running time. Oh, that's, the animation, that's two great white herons flying through the Florida, Florida Everglades on a moonlit night with more focus towards the segment's background art than animation. The sequence was later edited and rescored for the Blue Bayou segment in Make My Music 1946. Hmm. Okay, interesting. 
But uh, I think that would have been interesting here too. Yeah, they I could think of at least uh five things they could have cut before that one. Oh my goodness, Matt, five things. Maybe not five, but out of the eight musical segments, five musical segments cut? Well I can't wait to hear your scathing review. No, it's it's okay. It's just it doesn't make me feel many of the segments didn't really make me feel any certain way. Oh, I feel bad about that, that I forced you to watch this. It's, no, it's okay. It's good that I did. Oh. In 1992, a work print of the original was discovered, and Claire de Lune was restored, complete with the original soundtrack of Stavatsky mm. uh, with the Philadelphia Orchestra. It was included as a bonus feature in the Fantasia Anthology DVD in 2000. Um, before going in, this movie is, like, very hard to find, the original Fantasia. Really? Um, on physical media, yeah. I know that Disney has recently said, like, or some company has recently said they're going to shut down physical media. Yeah. But Fantasia has been the hardest to find for years. So, hmm. yeah. Hmm. I wonder how much they go for. I don't know, but I've got uh, some bootleg Blu-rays for us to watch <laughs> of Fantasia and Fantasia 2000 if nice. this quarantine ever ends. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's get into the notes. Let's get into the plot, shall we? Um, first thing I need to say is that this movie is probably the worst movie ever for deaf viewers to listen to. <laughs> yeah. There's only like five subtitles, so the person who had to write subtitles <laughs> for this got paid a, a buttload and didn't do anything. Yeah, they were very, they were even lazy about it. They didn't subtitle parts they could have. Yeah. But um, I mean, luckily, very fortunately, I guess um we're the opposite of death and <laughs> as this movie began i i put on my headphones and i decided to check out uh dolby access for headphones for mm. microsoft windows and um well i activated it it's a seven day free trial because apparently this is a paid service i turned it on and i couldn't really tell a difference but i wow. um, i did watch this in dolby and that's all that matters. Exactly. All right. Uh, Fantasia opens with live action scenes of members of an orchestra gathering against a blue background and turning, tuning their instruments in half light, half shadow. Uh, Master yeah, like of Ceremonies. D- yeah, I, I liked it too. It's very theatrical. Mm-hmm. It's cool. Uh, but Dean Stellars enters the stage and introduces the program. I put down, you know me, I love that theatricality of it all, plus stylish lighting and use of colored gels. Uh, he promises that the Fantasia will adhere to three things. One, definite story, two, definite picture, and three, music for its own sake, abstract music. Um, Leopold Tukowski conducts, and we begin. So we start our first segment out of eight with Takata and Fugue in D minor by Johann Sebastian Bach. And what did you think of this segment, Matt? Um, I'm trying to remember it, but I think I do. This, this was, was the one with the shapes and the, and the sounds lines. and the colors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, this one was pretty okay. I didn't mind it. I liked the song and I liked the, I, I liked the images. It was kind of interesting seeing how this is what the animators thought of when they listened to the music. Um, yeah. It was just, it was mostly interesting to like analyze their approach, but 
Yeah, you have a lot of shapes that are synchronized with the music. And, uh, well, I always like when that happens. <laughs> I mean, that I happens a lot. It. That's like the whole point of the movie. It's almost like Baby Driver. But um, <laughs> I don't know. I think it is more effective here than it is in some other spots. Mm. I liked how it's initially the movie is like you can imagine anything you want to fit in the music but they're using a guided hand here they're like but clearly you're gonna imagine what you're watching on screen (laughs) right um so it did feel a little guided in that aspect and i mean that kind of detracts from the original purpose but whatever i i do like how the different instruments get like a different i don't know how to describe this movie it's gonna be the 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 stick in my crawl for this episode because it's a lot of musical images on screen. You yeah, gotta would, be there to experience it. I would just say like shape or um or maybe curvature or like velo- maybe velocity. Yeah. All that stuff. <laughs> um I liked how when an instrument is playing, it's like a vague shadow of that instrument it's playing on screen. Right in some way so like if the flutes are going you see some two toots if the the cellos are going you see some string action yeah i definitely got that a lot with like the violins and the cellos lots of uh kind of like bowing back and forth yeah i think it was pretty Uh, good yeah uh animated lines shapes and cloud formations reflect the sound and rhythms of the music disney had been interested in producing abstract animation since he saw a color box by len line or len lee from 1935 he explained the work done in the Takata and Fugue segment was no sudden idea. There was something we had nursed along several years, but we never had a chance to try. Preliminary designs included those from effects animator Cy Young, who produced drawings influenced by the patterns on the edge of the piece of sound film. In late 1938, Disney hired Oscar Fischinger, a German artist who had produced numerous abstract animated films, including some with classical music, to the work of Young Upon Review of three Leica reels produced by the two. Disney rejected all three. According to Humor, all Fishinger did was little triangles and designs. It didn't come off at all. Too dinky, Walt said. Fishinger, like Disney, was used to having... Get somebody control. phone the dinkster? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Mark, where are you? <laughs> uh, too dinky, Walt said. Fishinger, like Disney, was used to having full control over his work and was not used to working in a group. Feeling his designs were too abstract for a mass audience, Fischinger left the studio in apparent despair before the segment was completed. In October 1939, Disney had plans to make the Takata and Fugue an experimental three-dimensional film, with audiences being given cardboard stereoscopic frames with their souvenir programs. Oh, that'd be dope. Yeah, this idea was abandoned. Uh, shadow play is used effectively i put down great way to hype up the power of the music more impressionistic reminds me of the school assignment so when i was in school my one of my first music classes had us take a piece of classical music and then like write a story based on what we hear and i remember that i got the highest marks in the class so hey look at that that, well you gotta tell everyone what your story was i don't remember but it was just like a vague thing and i put like it was something creepy. I think it might have been like a, a Night of Ball Mountain-esque thing because it was a Halloween assignment, but uh, I don't know. Maybe that maybe pursue some art in a higher degree based yeah. on what I did. Um, I put down that the music could be seen as birds slash effects of playing specific instruments. 
very Overture-esque, feeling water, sky, elemental, trees, mountains, pillars, starlight, more solid shapes, thunderstorms, and waves crashing. So I just put down like my initial thoughts of what I was feeling while watching and listening to the music. Yeah, it's like a very therapeutic or psychological approach. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like word association. Yeah, because uh, I think that everyone can view this music and this animation a little bit differently, which is part of its reason why I chose it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Our second segment is devoted to Tchaikovsky's Nut- Nutcracker Suite. Um, we get some uh, chagrin from the narrator. Mr. Taylor tells us that uh, Tchaikovsky hated this um kind of bastardization of his music which i i also love and also hate he's like oh well this is the least shit that i've prepared (laughs) um selections from the ballet suite underscore scenes depicting the changing of the seasons from summer to autumn to winter a variety of dances are presented with fairies fish flowers mushroom and leaves including dance of the sugar plum fairy uh, Chinese dance, Arabian dance, Russian dance, dance of the flutes, and waltz of the flowers. Um, yeah, this one I mostly liked. I gotta yeah. say, I think. Um, Can you explain why reasoning? No, <laughs> no, I think um, because it had a very it it had a clear plot, but it did take kind of some time to figure out what that was. It wasn't like really laid out from the beginning. You had to invest yourself in what you were seeing. And then you're like, oh, okay, now I get it. And now I see where it's going. And then sure enough, as like fall turns to winter, you're like, okay, yep, that's um, kind of what I saw coming. And then you kind of get excited to, to see how they're going to incorporate the future seasons into into their cycle that they have going on. And yeah, I, I don't know. I just kind of, I feel like um, what a lot of this movie was um at least maybe for like the first half to which this segment belongs and what a lot of like other disney movies are are like trying to explain natural phenomena with caricatures that like children would understand so like they would understand like the little fairies being responsible for the changing of the seasons um things like that and uh yeah some some of those those little I, I knew I liked winter for a reason, and it's because you got those little, those nice little taut, tight fairy boys that are naked, <laughs> making everything cold and hard. Oh, as I, I, I tell to Matt all the time, Disney was fascinated with butts in the 40s. Like, every one of their 40s films has some butts on it, and this movie is not a yeah. Oh, yeah. Full of butts. If you like butts, this is your film. <laughs> like some butts? See okay. more butts. Seymour Butts. Tchaikovsky made a selection of eight of the numbers from the ballet before the ballet's December 1892 premiere, forming the Nutcracker Suite, intended for concert performance. The suite was first performed under the composer's direction on the 19th of March, 1892, at an assembly of the St. Petersburg's branch of the Musical Society. The suite became instantly popular, with almost every number encored at its premiere, while the complete ballet did not achieve its goal in great popularity until after the George Balachin staging became a hit at in New York City. Um, the suite became very popular on the concert stage and was excerpted in Disney's Fantasia with everything omitted prior to the Sugar Plum Fairies. The Nutcracker Suite should not be mistaken for the complete ballet. 
Um, the Nutcracker yeah. Suite and yeah, yeah, the Nutcracker Suite animator Art Babbitt is said to have credited the Three Stooges as a guide for animating the dancing mushrooms and the Chinese dance routine. <laughs> to which I put, Matt, are these mushrooms racist? Did they come across as racist? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mostly because you know, if you're only going to show like one aspect of a race or a gender or anything like that in like the whole movie then you don't want to use like a really stereotypical view to portray that race or gender or anything yeah and when we say stereotypical they've got like squinty eyes and they're shuffling forward yeah and it's called you can immediately tell that they're supposed to be like asian uh, caricatures or inspired I mean, it's unfortunate that they put that in, like, the Chinese portion of the dance, but... Yeah, like, I don't know. I I get it. I get what they were going for. I'm sure it was, as far as the 40s go, nobody cared, but... It's, uh... (laughs) Yeah, it's a a little bit. (laughs) It's offensive. It's, uh, yeah, it's boiling them down to to just one of those aspects. Hmm. Uh, the studio filmed professional dancers Joyce Coles and Marjorie Belcher wearing ballet skirts that resembled shapes of blossoms that were to sit above the water for Dance of the Flutes. An Arabian dancer was also brought in to study the movements for the goldfish in the Arab dance, a.k.a. the, uh, the you know, sexy goldfish moment. Oh, yeah. The whap. This movie has a lot of, like, moments where it's like, um, that's a fish, that's a horse, but... Maybe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they really kind of anthropomorphize them uh, <laughs> by taking humans' most sexual, seductive aspects and just blowing them up into fish size. Yeah. Uh, for fans of Pinocchio, this is like a direct callback to Cleo from Pinocchio, too, which is the goldfish in that movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. So, as I told Matt while we were listening, I remember I had to sing the lyrics to this in, like, second or third grade. Like, the teacher had written lyrics for this song, and immediately I was like, oh, this doesn't work. Like, I don't know if we should be doing this. Yep. Uh, uh, but the fairies spin around, and they add, due to the world, uh, Peter Pan inspiration, too, with Tinkerbell. Um, mm-hmm. I put down mushrooms, Chinese dance. Now this is more like it. Um, I also asked myself the question, are the mushrooms racist, which we touched upon. The dance of the reed, flutes, flower petals falling, personifying them. Uh, the Arabian dance with some Pinocchio-esque Cleo goldfish. The preliminary hanger, uh, banger of the Nutcracker score. Uh, these fish are too sexy. I, I just did like stream of conscious notes. Those sexy-ass fish, man. They put the wet in WAP. <laughs> they do. These are wet-ass goldfish. <laughs> <laughs> With a PH. But, yeah. I, I mean, I did get the, uh, like, I, the Arabian-inspired dance across. It did kind of have, like, that belly-dancing um, aspect to it. Or yeah, I... to it. Which is uh, kind of interesting, but I don't need to see goldfish doing it. I, I don't. I don't. <laughs> They're like, would you fuck me? I would <laughs> they fuck really me. are. And they're like, like very they're playing coy with the camera. <laughs> they're playing coy, but I'm Ah, uh, yep. <laughs> There's the joke, Matt. <laughs> but I didn't mean to. 
<laughs> it writes itself. Come on. It does. It does write itself. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's not something I want to see. Yeah. Well, we get to I'm, the real point. I don't want to awaken anything in me. <laughs> That's for the segment coming up later with all the hippos and elephants and stuff. Oof, yeah. Um, so the real banger of the Nutcracker score is shown with the uh, Arabian dance, which is like everyone knows it. Come on, you saw that Magic School Bus episode. <laughs> yep. Um, I did like how they. Well, I don't like how they gendered the flowers. Like, like it's weird how Disney can even do that. It's like, oh well, these are guy flowers and these are girl flowers. And now they're gonna fuck. Basically, that's the whole thing that's going on here. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of fucking in this movie. Oh my gosh, there's so much like implicit fucking in this movie. But I kind of appreciate that because that's Disney acknowledging <laughs> that you know it's just a fact of life. Well, it's darker than a lot of the Disney films too, which I yeah. enjoy. I well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about a scene that's upcoming, but I don't think I've seen as much death in a Disney movie since Coco. Oh, or Coco. as many as many dead people, at least. <laughs> All right, so our next segment, one of Matt's favorite, we've got the Sorcerer's Apprentice, uh, starring Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Um, um, Mr. Taylor suggests that this is there to keep it hip for the kids. And um, it's based on The Sorcerer's Apprentice by Paul Dukas. By far the most performed and recorded of Dukas's work, based on Goethe's 1797 poem, Der yep. Uh Mickey Mouse, the young apprentice of the sorcerer Yen Sid, Disney spelled backwards. I know that from the Kingdom Hearts canon. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Yeah, so that wizard is known as Yen Sid. Disney's the anti anti Disney. Yeah, um, attempts to master the magic tricks, but does not know how to control them. The animation on the Sorcerer's Apprentice began on January twenty first, nineteen thirty eight, with James Alger, the director of the segment, assigned animator uh, Preston Blair to work on the scene when Mickey Mouse wakes from his dream. Each of the seven hundred members of staff at the time received a synopsis of Goethe's. 1797 poem uh, and were encouraged to complete a 20 question form that requested their ideas on what action might take place. Layout artist Tom Kodrick created what Dick Humor described as brilliantly colored thumbnails from preliminary storyboard sketches using gauche paints, which featured bordered use of color and lighting than any more board, bolder use of color and lighting than any previous Disney short. Uh, Mickey was redesigned by animator Fred Moore, who added pupils to his eyes um, for the first time to achieve greater ranges of expression. So I know that, oh, wow. Matt, you, you said, like, does Mickey always have teeth? And I think that was also added for this, too. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Wow. So, yeah, Mickey really got a makeover for this one. Yeah. I guess. Um, but the Mickey that's before this, you know, at least the first Mickey, I think he enters the public domain this year. <laughs> oh boy we're, we're gonna start selling nightcaps t-shirts with mickey on them oh gosh and ida <laughs> <laughs> hey that's perfect yeah i do a good mickey but i can't do a donald unfortunately <laughs> it's the one voice that i have struggles with i can't i just can't do a donald oh, fuck yeah <laughs> it just comes out like homie <laughs> marsh simpson <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh, okay. So for the recording of the Sorcerer's Expre- uh, Apprentice, um, engineers at Disney collaborated with RCA uh, Corporation for using multiple audio channels, which allowed any desired dynamic balance to be achieved upon playback. I didn't understand a word in that sentence, but I wrote it down, and I guess it makes sense to some people out there. Yeah, um, not even they to used, me a little bit. Yeah, they used live actors during this segment too, as they usually did back in the day, hmm. um, which I appreciate. And then their animators like sketched over them, wow. so um, the soundstage was altered. Off, oh, I can't say this word acoustically with double plywood semicircular partitions that separated the orchestra into five sections to increase reverberation. <laughs> okay. I have a lot of notes on this music nomenclature, but it's going to wind up like our uh, other segments where I'm like, that music was good. <laughs> yeah. It's good. Um, Somebody though, out there will know. <laughs> we'll get it. Though as the production of Fantasia developed, the setup used for the Sorcerer's Apprentice was abandoned for different multi-channel recording arrangement. Um, So the Sorcerer's Apprentice inspired that awful Nick Cage movie by the same name that's also live action. Wait, really? Yeah, remember the Sorcerer's Apprentice with Nick Cage? Yeah, I think I vaguely do. I had no clue it was like based on this short. Yeah, where my uncle said, it's just like Harry Potter, and I went, no. (laughs) No. Wow, that's like a bad idea. They shouldn't have greenlit that. No, no, they shouldn't have. <laughs> what? what do you, have you seen the movie? What happens in it? I haven't seen it, but Nick Cage is the sorcerer, and he takes on a young ward as his apprentice okay. in, like, modern-day New York City. <sighs> I don't know about it, but more power to him, I guess. Like, that was a movie that existed. Yeah. Um, like many things, this segment used to creep me the fuck out as a child. Uh, so, so you know but... what, actually? That was really the first... I'm fixated on the Sorcerer's Apprentice thing. That was really the first uh, <laughs> Disney live-action remake then. Was it? It sounds... Yeah. I guess, even, yeah, even before their current trend. There I know it was before Enchanted, which is a good movie. Oh, yeah, that's true. That is... Uh kind of is that like based on a disney short or just like in general it's just based on like disney tropes right yeah Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) starring best girl amy adams yeah hollywood's favorite um uh yen sid is channeling his dark powers to summon the demons from hell he goes off to bed clearly tired Mickey is doing shit, but he figures, oh my god, these brooms, I'm going to enchant them to do my work for me. And steals Yensid's hat. Hater's going to hate. Imagery of Mickey's dream, commanding the sea and stars. Um, The drugs are really hitting at this point, if you've taken the drugs. And back in the real world, the broom is on auto and has flooded their whole living space. Uh, Mm -hmm. I put down the water damage that this space (laughs) must face. Yeah, they're not getting their deposit back. Yeah. Uh, Mickey grabs an axe and fucking ices that bitch broom. And um, in like a Mahon Drive segment, these brooms come to life and they're multiplied mm-hmm. and they're pouring water everywhere. Like they're drowning Mickey. Yeah. Mickey How sad. Mickey, well, it's by his own hand, by his own power. <laughs> his hubris. Yeah. He forgot to uh, close his for loop 
or you know yeah. baking a, a break into his code I, I like this. I, I like this uh, segment because it kind of appeals to my um, coding inclined or programming inclined nature. <laughs> I like. I think that's the the closest thing we have to the the magic displayed here. And uh, yeah, you know, sometimes you just accidentally run a a function or or a program that's supposed to close, but it runs infinitely and crashes your computer. You put too many ones than zeros. It's understandable. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I do like that Mickey, like, is pouring shit out the window. And at one point we see, like, the window is covered up. Like, I don't know if that's the way the world would work. But okay. <laughs> hey, just when, when everyone's against Mickey. <laughs> it's got to go that way. Yep. Uh, Mickey's deaf going to drown. And Yen Sid is comes down and is like, what the fuck have you been doing? Uh, he stops it using the powers of Satan and dark magic. <laughs> and he beats Mickey's ass with a broom, which is yeah. all for good sake. I, I miss this day where Mickey used to be entitled to be like a, um, like a shit. Like, you know, like yeah. he's a, a mischievous little shit instead of a, a clean gloved little mouse. Yeah, now he's like the straight man. <sighs> it was. Um, in our next segment, we get the chimes. They're knocked over by the live-action studio orchestrators. I I have a question about this. I thought it was staged. I thought that was like part of the movie. But do um, you have anything on that in your notes? I don't, but I would like to think that it was staged. <laughs> yeah, because I think these guys have a sense of humor. And yeah. I think because they're... I, the reason I think it is because they're introducing the Rites of Spring, and I think... I feel like the Rites of Spring is supposed to be like a really cacophonous or like, I, I thought that was one, pl- uh, not play, I guess, musical performance that um, people, like audiences really didn't like. Like I thought it was really unpopular, but maybe I'm thinking, yeah. of, maybe I'm thinking of like Appalachian Spring. If that's no, playing. no, I love to hear your classical musical thoughts because that's the only music that I can offer commentary on. Oh, I don't know much else other than that, if it's even true. But so no, I, I but think, like, I thought, like, the joke they were going for was that it was kind of a play on that. I'm just yeah. fucking up the chimes. No, you you touched upon exactly because that's what they wanted. So the Rite of Spring is by Igor Stravinsky, and it was originally meant to uh, express primitive life. It's very ritualistic in performance and concept, and was meant to be like solemn pagan dance. So it was a bit more. I don't want to say like old fashioned compared to modern day classical music, but I think you touched upon like what they were trying to get across in the segment <laughs> with that, with the chimes falling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's good subtle humor. Yeah, our narrator uh, denotes that this will be like the bullies and gangsters of the dinosaur universe, <laughs> <laughs> which initially I'm like, okay, they're dinosaurs, calm down, but. I see where they're going here. They give them a nice personality. Yeah, and he calls um the Tyrannosaurus Rex the meanest killer on Earth. And I'm like, well, he hasn't met Ted Bundy. Oh, yeah, that's true. Um, and this is before Disney's Dinosaurs. <laughs> an, an awful movie. Oh, awful. Yeah. Oh, God. Maybe, maybe that so was bad. the first live-action remake. Whew, so bad. Um, so this segment is a visual history of the Earth's beginnings. It's depicted to selected sections of the ballet score. 
The sequence progresses from the planet's formation to the first living creatures, followed by the reign and extinction of the dinosaurs. An early concept for the Rite of Spring was to extend the story to an age of mammals and the first humans and the discovery of fire and man's triumph. John Hubley, the segment's art director, explained that it was later curtailed by Disney to avoid controversy from creationists, which were a thing back in the 40s. Like, oh, we didn't come from monkeys. We came from God. Oh, yeah. That's still a thing. Uh, Who promised to make trouble should he connect evolution with humans. To gain a better understanding of the history of the planet, the studio received guidance from Roy Chapman Andrews, the director of the American Museum of Natural History, English biologist Julian Huxley, paleontologist Barnum Brown, and astronomer uh, Edwin Hubble. Wow, animators, cool. yeah, the animators studied comets and nebula at the Mount Wilson Observatory and observed a herd of iguanas and a baby alligator that were brought into the studio. So I like like old-fashioned Disney where they brought live things into the studio for their animators to work on. That's yeah. always a very cool thing. Yeah, I think that is pretty cool. Yeah. Like when they did that with Bambi, like on the extra credit, I, I love Bambi. Bambi is like one of my favorites. And um, I like how they brought in like animals and stuff to study live action wise. Yeah. And how they interacted with one another. I don't know. Um, the viewpoint was kept low throughout the segment to heighten the immensity of the dinosaurs. And Matt, you know, this was a 2001 callback. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I'm pretty sure that Kubrick referenced this in his film. That's very possible. There are yeah. definitely similarities. Um, so 2001 A Space Odyssey vibes, Molten Planet, Stanky Clarinet. I put that down even in the notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, that whoever's on the clarinet is fucking blowing that clarinet. <laughs> <laughs> They're going, do, 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 do. Yeah, this is the one where I got um Le'Veon Rose vibes. Yeah. From the, from like a recurring melody. It's like yeah. doo, 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 doo. <laughs> I put down that Edith Piaf looks like a dinosaur. So. <laughs> Basically the same thing. Uh, live action smoke. Yeah. <laughs> I I didn't like their use of live action smoke during this segment, but it's there. Oh, I didn't notice that was live action, I think. Yeah. yeah, whenever they cut to, like, different eras, it's, like, live-action smoke. Ooh. I don't think I noticed that. It's <laughs> interesting. Uh, I put down Land Before Time is Shaking, The Sea, Sell Your Life, Off-Screen Evolution, Fish Evolves to Live on Land, Plesiosaurus, Pterodactyls. Um, see that Animal Crossing do come in handy, Matt. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's long necks, those egg-stealing guys, Stegosaurus, Triceratops, Ducky and Spike's parents. Uh, and I felt for this little guy that's just trying to get an egg. It's like a little dinosaur that could. He's on four legs. He's yeah. Trying to steal an egg. I, I do really like this segment because this segment actually like inspired me to feel some things. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Um, a storm approach, and so does a T-Rex, and this Triterosops is freaking the fuck out. Hey, rightfully so, man. I would be I, right I, with them. I love him. His eye is just a gape. <laughs> he is. <laughs> he is like, what the fuck is going on in my life? <laughs> uh, I love it. He's yeah, like, this is way above my pay grade. Oh, oh. And then we get the Stegosaurus fight. Uh, Cordis swore that there was blood in this as a kid. I don't know if this is the Disney Plus adaptation, 
but I could have sure. swore there was a little blood. I don't know. So Disney Plus keeps the breasts and asses, but they take out the blood. Well, that's plausible. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, we we get a world star moment between these two dinos. It's it's oh, my riveting. Yeah, and this tr- this uh, T Rex is like anyone gonna anyone gonna try? <laughs> yeah. I like it. Like, I got um, I got like Planet Earth vibes, or you know, like Animal Planet vibes. I, I think yeah, which, which cool. I like. And they're using forty science, so like we we suggest nowadays that it's a meteor that wiped them all out, but they go a different route. Yeah, I hadn't even considered that. Um, I guess it would have been different eighty years ago. The like prevailing school of thought. Oh my God, we're old. <laughs> well, life is infinite, and. The only thing we'll have to last us is this podcast. Indeed. Watch in a hundred years, people are going to discover this and be like, "There's a hidden gem." Oh my gosh! They turned a two-hour movie into a five-hour movie. <laughs> wow! Amazing achievement. Good for them. Um, uh, there's a drought for lack of tree stars slash food. Uh, I put down Lawrence of Arabia much. It, it felt like Lawrence of Arabia. It did. Yeah, you just have a bunch of dinos uh, walking along the desert and struggling to find water. Yeah. Stuck in the tar, slowly dying. Everybody's dying. There's eclipse. There's an earthquake. Really detailed rocks. And then the sea reclaims all. Another eclipse. And the segment ends. Yeah. I, I think it's powerful for what it is. I think this is the segment that scared me the most as a child because I was just like, oh. Oh, yeah, this is horrifying. You have, yeah, dino- I, I, you have dinosaurs destroying each other and then oh they goodness. all die. Yeah, I, I felt like that lady who was getting a panic attack in the review segment of this <laughs> yes. podcast. Oh, we'll get to some more of that. Yeah. But, um, um, yeah, I, I was expecting like a meteor to come while watching this. So I guess if you're living in 2020 and you're watching this movie and you're expecting a meteor to come uh don't because it never does well it's one of my phobias from the (laughs) the younger days of me what a meteor coming yeah i used to be scared of that every day (laughs) that's pretty good (laughs) was it matt i guess it is i don't it's like it's a somewhat valid concern i just you know i never thought of that I used to ask my parents, "Is today the day?" So, <laughs> like, yeah, as a kid, I could see, I could see people thinking that. Bet you didn't know that about me in high school. <laughs> <laughs> high school. <laughs> I oh, it ran deep. This river ran deep, Matthew. <laughs> oh boy, this is a phobia that I I killed in college, and then one of my one of my students asked. He had the same phobia, and I went. Oh. <laughs> Well, we we would have a warning, oh. have like a few hours warning. I wouldn't want a warning. Just let it happen. <laughs> Jesus Christ, man! Uh, well, not today. All right, so fifteen minute intermission. Uh, take your edible now. I put down in my notes, <laughs> and the intermission concludes with these guys playing some jazz. Oh yeah. Yeah, do you like jazz? I like this segment. They're like goofing off. It's yeah. scripted but true. Right. They're they're improving with each other and they're like, well, you know, while the teacher's away, we shall play jazz. Yeah. And our, our main dude shows up again. He gives a little hem <laughs> and they stop. And then the segment that I think should have been cut, we meet the soundtrack.
Yep. Oh <laughs> yeah. Soundtrack. Well, I actually already completely forgot about this one. Yeah. Yep. Um, there's not much to say. I, like, I guess it's kind of interesting what they're going for because they they want to like educate younger listeners as to what sound really is, I guess, and like sound waves and things like that. Mm. But um. Uh, it's it's mostly just like extra intermission like in case you're late for the movie you could walk in during this part and you won't have missed much yeah yeah i agree that's the same thing you do in theater they usually put like the booty song right after the entre act so <laughs> people can walk in late and be fine with the plot yeah whatever is going on um but our next segment we get uh beethoven in his pastoral symphony uh, Beethoven was a great nature lover. The composer said that the Sixth Symphony is more of an expression of feeling than painting, a point underlined by the title of the first movement. Frank A. De Acone suggested that Beethoven borrowed the primatic ideas, a shepherd's pipe, a bird singing, streams flowing, and a thunderstorm in the Pastoral Symphony. Um, and Disney chooses to frame this in a mythical Greco-Roman world full of colorful centaurs and centaurettes. Cupids, fawns, and other figures from classical mythology as portrayed by Beethoven's music. So what did you think of this segment, Matt? Uh, I liked the Zeus stuff. Okay. (laughs) I liked when they introduced the gods. And, you know, there was a conflict because up until that point, it was literally just happy-go-lucky, like, not a care in the world. (laughs) We're going to (laughs) fuck. We're going to live forever. Nothing bad's (laughs) ever going to happen. And it was just, it was too much. Um, and yeah. you, got, you, you got these, uh, <laughs> you you got a, a crop of guys um, <laughs> head into like a stable of women and uh, the cherubs there are pimping them out. Like, see yeah. it when you like, buddy. It's, I mean, I love it. It's like artistic, but at the same time, I think it's the worst segment in the film. <laughs> It's uh the what was it the best little <laughs> the best little centaur house in the prairie. There you go. Yeah, buddy, I made a pun. <laughs> um, but I I feel the same with you. I think it takes forever and it's cute, but I don't know. They could have cut this and it would have been fine. Yeah, I mostly like like Zeus's character and uh, who was that other one? Venus. Uh, no, it's um, Vulcan is okay. cutting the cutting the lightning bolts. Yeah, like I like their dynamic. Um, Zeus just seems really chill. Yeah, and <laughs> I I, I I noticed during this view viewing that he has um, if you've watched Disney's Hercules, it's the same like character model but a different skin tone. Yeah, which is pretty cool. That's a nice that, callback. Yeah, that's super interesting that they they took the work from Fantasia and they implemented it into Disney's Hercules. So to get to the plot of this segment, um, the gathering of the festival to honor Bacchus, the god of wine, is interrupted by Zeus, who creates a storm and directs Vulcan to forge lightning bolts for him and to throw at the attendees. According to Ward Kimball, the animators were extremely specific on touchy issues. In the making of the Pastoral Symphony Greek mythological segment, the female centers were originally drawn bare-breasted, but the Hayes office enforcing the motion picture production code insisted that they discreetly hung garlands around their necks, even though they didn't have any nipples in this segment. Right. 
And so we do I, see them bare-breasted at the beginning. Yeah. But without a nipple, I think that makes all the difference, as I suggested. Like, these nippleless people aren't doing it for me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I think even if they add it, you know, free the nipple. <laughs> Back in the day. Uh, yeah. The male centaurs were also toned down to appear less intimidating to the audience. I did not like the male centaurs' design. I felt they they felt very white bread, very vanilla. And oh yeah, very much. It's like yeah. uh, like Prince Charming, but extrapolated to. <laughs> yeah, it's Prince Charming, but on a horse's body. All and right, then, uh, in a segment very famous to the film that Matt hasn't seen yet that I'll probably show him after the viewing. Um, originally black centaur females braided piccaninny hair shining the hooves and grooming the tails of the white centaurs or the coated white centaurs uh, during this shot and it was cut out years yeah it's it's horrible it's it's very bad how racist this segment was but it is on youtube if you want to give it a gander um, but they depicted these two characters in a racially stereotypic, uh, stereotyped manner. Um, a black centaurette called Sunflower was depicted polishing the hooves of a white centaurette. And a second name, Otica, appeared briefly during the procession scenes with Bacchus and his followers. According to Disney archivist David Smith, the sequence was aired uncut on television in 1963 before the edits were made for the film's 1969 theatrical release. Uh, John Karnokin, the editor responsible for the change in the 1991 video release, said, It's sort of appalling to me that these stereotypes were ever put in. Film critic Roger Ebert commented on the edit, While the original film should, of course, be preserved for historical purposes, there is no need for the general release version to uh, perpetuate racist stereotypes in a film designed primarily for children. The edits have been in place in all these subse- uh, subsequent theatrical and home video reissues. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering how they would have, like, people on YouTube would have gotten their hands on a copy of this if it was edited out so early on. But they find a way. Love finds a way. <laughs> yeah, that they do. Um, also in the segment, the Zebra Girls are coded as, like, African, which I don't... Yeah. And they're serving like they're serving like the emperor. Yeah, still uh, problematic in this day, but uh, yet still there. Um. So while this is going on, Zeus sleeps. Uh, some rainbow coloring. After all this, Zeus vibes have gone down. The best segment of this animation segment: um, Apollo on the sun chariot. Um, I put down. Do they go through this shit every day? Like. What are the lives of these centaurs? Yeah, exactly. And I was thinking, like, um, why don't they rebel against Zeus? They, that's what the the segment should have been. Yeah. Should have been them trying to overthrow the gods. Uh, a union call. <laughs> yeah. And then and then you have a, a Apollo swinging by on his chariot, and he's like, he's just waving to them like, hey, uh, no no hard feelings about my, my dad yeah. trying to kill you all. <laughs> my bad <laughs> sorry um a design i really like is morpheus who's like the he's the god of sleep but he comes over in like a very art nouveau sort of way like his his cape is draping across the world yeah that cool. was pretty cool i like how they usher in nighttime with that yeah and uh we get diana firing her bow from the from the moon and then our segment ends and we get to our last two segments of the film 
Uh, my personal favorite. So we get Dance of the Hours by Amalakari. Oh my gosh, Ponicelli. Um, uh, from the Italian Danza delle Ore, a uh, musical episode from Act 3, Scene 2 of Amichele Ponicelli's opera La Gioconda that is often performed as a standalone orchestral work. Uh, what did you think of this segment, man? <laughs> well, again, we have um, even further uh, exploitation of animals for yeah. sexual gain. But I like it. It's like campy fun in this segment. Whereas like last segment, it felt a little bit too much. Yeah, it's rather campy, but it's just a little bit too silly for me. Or just too, like, I don't really know what the point is that they're trying to get across. Well, they did say in the beginning that it's meant to show the passage of time throughout the day, right? I don't know. I didn't get that vibe from this at all. All right, so we get Alan Sherman's Hello Mother, Hello Father <laughs> opening this segment and a comic ballet in four sections. Madame Opnova and her ostriches representing the morning. Yeah, and there, those ostriches are thick. Oh, they're thick. They but got then, But then, like, you think, okay, they're thick. That's, that's about it. And then the next group, the next flock gets even <laughs> thicker. Oh my gosh, we've got Hyacinth Hippo and her servants representing the afternoon. Oh yeah, they they are like my my oven back in my Brooklyn apartment. They are well built. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious, man. Like these hippos, there's a reason why these hippos are famous. <laughs> That's all I'll say. Mm-hmm. Uh, next is Elephant Chine and her bubble-blowing elephant troop representing Evening. And uh, I don't know what they're trying to do to this poor hippo. Like, Yes, that, I have so many questions. Yeah, they're blowing bubbles. They're... I don't know. <laughs> they're out there. They're, they're just... I got new Spiria vibes from oh my- this ritual that they're trying to do. They're like all... Uh, around Blanc, they're Marcos, <laughs> they're clamoring around this um, this hippo who's just sleeping, and they couldn't they subsume her, and then she like gets tossed into the air somehow. Is subsume a word? <laughs> I'm pretty sure, yeah. They like engulf subsume. her. Wow, it's very weird, yeah. It's it, but and then they all get blown away. Yeah, oh, it's a subsume to include or absorb something in something wow. else. You told me a word on today's podcast, which I never thought possible. Nice. Wow. And then we get our best boys. We get Ben Alligator and his troop of alligators. Ah, oh, fuck these guys. These, I, these are pervs. I don't know. I love them. I think they're they're fun. Like Ugh. That's all I can say about them. They're fun little alligators. I get creeper vibes from them. Uh, uh, the finale ends, all the characters dancing together until their palace collapse. Uh, Dance of the Hours was directed by Norman Ferguson and Fortin He, and was completed by 11 animators. Most of the story was outlined in the meeting on October 1938, including the creation of the main alligator character, Ben Alligator. Uh, its story, direction, layout, and animation underwent several rewrites, yet Disney wanted to present animals perform a legitimate caricature ballet sequence with comedic slips. The design of the elephants and alligators were based on those by German illustrator Henrik Clay, 
while the hippos and ostriches were based on those by cartoonist T.S. Sullivan. Uh, to gain a better idea of the animals' movements, the crew visited Griffith Park Zoo in Los Angeles. Um, animator John Hench was assigned to work on the segment, but resisted as he knew little about ballet. Disney there's, no, then... there's no way they saw hippos moving like that with their hips at the zoo. I don't know. <laughs> I know what those hippos be doing. I guess so. Uh, Disney then gave Hench season tickets to the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo with backstage access, a dream, so he could learn more about it. The studio <laughs> filmed several people in live action to help with the animation of the characters. The lead ostrich, Mademoiselle Upnova, is based upon Arena uh, Baranova. Hyacinth Hippo, the prima ballerina, was inspired by dancers Marge Champion and Tatiana Ryabushkinska. Oh, oh my god, that name. Ryabushkinska, <laughs> an actress, Hattie Noel, who weighed over 200 pounds. Wow. I mean, that's my life, weighing over 200 pounds. If only I could be a a ballet instructor. <laughs> uh, the animators studying the least quiver of her flesh, noticing these parts of her anatomy that were subjected to the greatest stress and strain. Jeez. God, that, that's a creepy quote, if I've ever heard any, but yeah. sure. And the, uh, uh, I think one of the dance portions when like the elephants have their trunks uh, tangled in each other's tails, I think that was directly inspired by human centipede. <laughs> Will you be the front or the back? <laughs> oh, God. Please don't ever watch that movie on this podcast, because that movie creeps me the fuck out. Well, we do have an Oktoberfest coming soon. No, don't make me watch Human Centipede! <laughs> I'll never tell. I mean, I did force you to watch Fantasia, so I guess yeah, that's... To be fair, I think they're pretty different. They're on different levels. Uh, anyways, uh... Ryobuchkin, oh, I can't say this name. Ryobuchinska's husband, David Lachine, was used for Ben Alligator's movements. So it's funny that the like husband and wife were, you know, meant to dance the same dance together and used as animation. Yeah. That, that's cool. I love that. Uh, the best form and function of the piece, in my opinion, according to like the original Fantasia, um, like the transition of animals' dance styles and costumes. It reminds me of the flamingo scene in Fantasia 2000. Um, I put down ostriches are giving us them stanky legs. Uh, <laughs> comedic ballet, great playing with the weight of different animals. So like when the, the alligator is meant to catch the hippo, I really like the squash and stretch that's going on in that scene. Yeah, that's true. They, they had a very dirty dancing moment. Yeah, to which I replied your exact quote. What, what are these elephants doing? <laughs> Funny. Uh, uh Maybe a precursor to the pink elephant segment in Dumbo? That yeah, could be. Very true. Because they, they learned how to draw elephants a little bit more smooth. <laughs> yeah, these elephants have like some bulbous follicles and hair coming out of their heads. It's it's weird. I don't like yeah. it. I didn't like it either, but I mean, it's more realistic elephants, but... I guess so. And then I put down simply these alligators. I love these alligators. And... <laughs> Ben Alligator in Love, to which I replied, Chaos. And I, I like the ending of this. I think it's very iconic. <laughs> I, I kind of got like um, a little bit of West Side Story vibes from here, just because there are different oh. like gangs of uh, people coming together to dance at each other. 
may that remake ever come out i don't know we'll see we'll we'll see indeed i mean Um, now we got um who is it ansel elgord i think yeah i'll just be replacing cheetah rivera with ansel elgort or put um christopher Plummer in for him it's sad that we've got like a traumatic west side story broadway adaptation and then we got a traumatic west side story movie adaptation all within the same time frame so yikes i guess it's cursed oh my god i wish it wasn't and then you had a cursed first viewing of the film yeah well uh was that my was it my first viewing i guess i mean you saw snippets because you're puerto rican you've got to like in your life like you have to yeah in the hospital they (laughs) being born they showed it to us they said, okay, Puerto Rican baby, West Side Story it is. We got it. <laughs> All right. And then we get to our final piece, Night on Ball Mountain by Modest Mozerski. Um, and this is the piece that fucking traumatized me as a child. But <laughs> I love it anyway. It's good. I yeah. I like really enjoy some of the textures that they use because it feels like a lot of the like ghouls that they have are very chalky, which mm. I thought was uh, pretty cool. And... Yeah, I just, I appreciate, like, the gothic-ness of it all, I guess. It's uh, very, very ghoulish, very haunting, and um, like I said, very dark. You normally don't see that many dead people in a Disney movie. No. Um, We also get Ave Maria by Franz Schubert, uh, one of my mom's favorite songs. Whenever she's like, oh, they're playing Ave Maria, (laughs) I cry. It's the Italian mom way, unfortunately. Um, but she doesn't know any of the backstory of Franz Schubert or Faust or any of that, but whatever. Um, at midnight, the devil Chernabog, who I have a poster on my wall, if Matt remembers my kitchen setup. I do. Yeah. I usually sit right next to that boy. Yeah. Um, and awakens and summons evil spirits and restless souls from their graves to Bald Mountain, uh, on Valpurgis Noct, the spirits dance and fly through the air until driven back by the sound of an angelus bell. As night fades into dawn, a chorus is heard singing Ave Maria as a line of robed monks is depicted walking with lidded torches through a forest into the ruins of a cathedral. Night on Ball Mountain was directed by Wilfred Jackson. Its story closely follows the descriptions that Muskowski had written in his original score of the tone poem. Chernabog was adam- animated by Vladimir Tilta. His design inspired from pencil sketch by Swiss uh, artist Albert Porter of a demon sitting atop a mountain unfolding its wings. And I think that Chernabog's design is fucking badass. Like, yeah, he's intimidating. It's a great design. Definitely. And yeah. I, I feel like I'm familiar with that, uh, the painting that it's based upon. Mm. Demon on four. I just want to get like a, a visual of it. Yeah. I'm seeing um, a bunch of uh, deviant art come up. Ooh, how fun. <laughs> Search Hippo for a good time. Oh, no. (laughs) No? No, thank you. (sighs) All right. So despite Herter never producing animation for Disney, the studio temporarily hired him to produce pencil sketches for the animators to gain inspiration from. Chernabog and parts of the segment were developed further by Danish-born illustrator Kay Nielsen. Uh, Tilta conducted research on all the characters he had animated and being Ukrainian, was familiar with the folklore of the story detailed. 
actor Bela Lugosi, best known for his role of Dracula, was brought in to provide reference poses for Chernabog, but Tilta disliked the results. He then got Jackson to pose shirtless, which gave him images he needed. At one point in his development, the idea of using black cats to represent evil was considered, but Disney rejected it as though cats had always been used in the previous films. Um, the film's program reads that Ave Maria provides an emotional relief to the audience's tense from shock of Night of Ball Mountain. Um, I was also getting very Nosferatu vibes from Chernabog's design as well. The AMC show? Well, oh <laughs> you had to do it to me, I didn't had you? To. Oh, fuck that show. They're still like, it's supposed to be the finale and they still have three episodes left, Matt. I I can't win Nosferatu, but I'll continue to watch because I have to. But uh, do you get the Nosferatu vibes from it? Like the original German expressionistic? No, I don't think I'm no. really familiar with uh, Nosferatu. You've never seen the original? Oh. I, nope. That means I have to pick a silent film to watch on this podcast. No, my only um, my only familiarity with him is his guest appearance on SpongeBob. Uh, fine, <laughs> I'll take it. It's something, <laughs> but Disney did not want much animated movie, but movement, but required the segment to bring the background artwork to the forefront. An early outline had the segment end with a Madonna presented on the screen with the clouds, but Disney decided against this as he did not want to suggest overtly religious imagery. But I feel like this does. And, and I mean, we, we debated about it back and forth. I like the simplicity of it. Yeah, I think eventually it won me over. I, yeah. The simplicity is nice. But I guess maybe I was looking for more like... Um... It was just very anticlimactic, <laughs> like the transition from evil Chernabog to people singing. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, the Chernabog new... segment is a banger, and then the Ave Maria is like the the downer of the segment. <laughs> but he was just defeated so easily. Yeah, he kind of a little punk. Oh, but I love this segment so much. I think it's very artistic. I love the theatricality of like Chernabog's poses. And how he gets stricken down by the bell. It, it just feels very organic to me. And mm. I enjoy it. Um, but I also put down in my notes polyester much. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> you know what? There, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with a reason too. Yeah, there wasn't any scratch and sniff. Huh. Polyester. Uh, I also put down gorgeous art, but... You know, I the the music piece that haunts me the most is Peter and the Wolf, and this is one of the songs that did that to me. <laughs> and um, Chernabog is a badass, raising spirits from the dead, witches, hellfire. Uh, there were some tits with nipples in this segment. Oh yeah, that's true. Which ooh. see, and nobody nobody got hurt as a result. <laughs> Free the nipples. And, uh, Oh man, a, a, a segment that I like in this is like, so Chernabog is like conjuring spirits and he's got like this this pig, this goat, and this wolf right. that change from nude women. And I love the handography, first of all. It's like the best hand animation in animation that I've seen. But I also like that these are three satanic symbols like brought into, it's hard to describe on this podcast, but <laughs> it 
it's there. It's like three satanic animals all brought into like Chernabog's playthings. Yeah. I don't know. I yeah, liked it. Pretty, pretty bold and daring of Disney. Yeah. And uh, transitioning flawlessly back into the mountains. So when he's defeated by the church bell, he changes back into the mountain by uh, closing up his wings. And then Ave Maria, an intersecting use of religion, which I wish Disney did more. They do more in like uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame. But after that, there's no religion in Disney movies, basically. Yeah, eh, I don't mind either way, but uh, I'm a heathen. I'm a bad, I'm a failed Catholic, so it affected me. Yeah. Um, but... <laughs> That's all my notes, Matt. So we're Whew. done. This actually somehow ran into a, a normal length episode for us. I know. I, I expanded it. Remember when you thought it would be the shortest episode in history? Yeah, but no, it was good. Yeah. Um, so any final thoughts before we give our pizza ratings and sign off? Well, I mean, I do really appreciate the notes. I think they're very um, useful and handy this time. Uh, not that they're not any other time, but I mean, particularly like they were able to shed a lot of light on what I just saw because uh, I'm a simpleton. <laughs> and <laughs> I, if you're showing me colors and shapes, I'm like, what is this supposed to mean? But, um, that helped quite a, quite a bit and uh, probably enhanced my enjoyment of it as well. Mm. Um yeah, I think it's it's a solid movie, just a bit long, and some parts of it are maybe uh, like a little unfocused or kind of telling. It's like how they mention in the beginning music for music's sake. Um, yeah. This one would be kind of visuals and plot for visuals and plot's sake, um, which normally okay. I don't mind, but... Normally, when I like like plotless things, they have good dialogue to accompany them. But you know, obviously, that's not possible this time. But there is uh, good music, uh, pretty decent music. Um, I want to have maybe seen it in a, a theater. Like I, I, if they re-release this, maybe not sometime. Fantasound. So. <laughs> yeah, like I think. Or even watching, you know, it would be really cool watching a like a live scoring along with the film. Oh my god, that would that would be badass! I would go to that. Yeah, like I, I think I'd really enjoy that because, um, you know, even with my headphones set up, even with my Dolby Access for headphones, which I didn't know existed until today, I, uh, yeah, the music felt a little like a little flat, like it was compressed in terms of dynamic oh. range and wasn't a lot of like instrument separation so i think watching something like this with a live accompaniment would be fantastic like that would be the ultimate way to go about it and um mm. and yeah so i i guess in that respect the music wasn't really at the forefront for me it was more of the visuals which uh i think wasn't entirely the point of the film so mm. I, I think a lot of it depends on how you experience this movie. So with that said, this was a, this was a good experience. And I, I like how much of this was open to Don't interpretation. Don't lie to me. <laughs> no, it, it was good. Don't you it, tell lies part, to me. Parts of it made me feel uh, smart. Uh, parts of it made me feel <laughs> dumb, but in a good way. It's, um, yeah, I, I, 
I like the feeling that it uh, provided me with. Um, I know you were from... like that Stegosaurus with the wide eyes going, what the fuck <laughs> is happening? <laughs> Apart from uh, some of the boring scenes that uh, we, we ran over or we recapped. But um, it was it was it was solid. How would you rank them? Like, what was your worst? What was your best? I think my my best was uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice. Okay, uh, just because I mean it's a classic. I've definitely seen that one multiple times before. But um, yeah, I like the story. I like the the message that it has, and I like how I could relate it to. Uh, like what I mentioned before, like some programming and things like that. And and mm. I mentioned hubris too, just because hubris is so present in so many things. So it's always a okay. good thing to uh, point out and like criticize. And, and your uh, worst? Hmm. Worst. There was eight segments. There was uh, fucking fairies in, in the, the seasons. <laughs> Yeah, that might be uh, that might be in like in the bottom half, but closer to the middle. So it's not too bad. I think probably the uh, the unicorn shit. <laughs> yeah, that's what I would agree on. Yeah. Yeah, unicorns and Pegasuses, and it really wasn't going anywhere until Zeus came along, and then uh, it was good, but it's still the worst because everything else is pretty okay uh, to like very good. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, should I give my rating? Yeah, give it. Give All it. right. I give Fantasia 1940 a 5.85 out of 8 pizza slices. Oh my god, I've tortured Matt. This is like the lowest rating he's ever given a movie <laughs> on this podcast. That's not true. Can't I, I think it is. If we go back and the, check the records. No. <laughs> it can't be worse than uh, Master, Master of Disguise. No, I think you rated that pretty high. Or Battlefield Earth. Oh, oof. Yeah. Oof. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. You, did, you did it. I didn't hate this. All right. I mean, you liked it better than you thought you would. Yeah. Maybe. Um. All right. So if I had to say anything about this movie, it's really connected with me over the ages. I love theatricality. I love music just set to animation, so that's why I chose it. I think that this is a... It has more hits and misses than Fantasia 2000, which is why I chose it originally. I think Fantasia 2000 has more hits. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to see the lows and the highs, if that makes any sense. Um, uh, If I had to rank my favorite segments, I think my favorite would be the Dance of Hours, a.k.a. Hippo, (laughs) you know. Hippo moment, and the bottom would definitely be um, uh, the Rite of Spring. No, is that the Rite of Spring? Oh, the the, Rite of Spring was the dinosaurs. Oh, Pastoral Symphony. There we go. Yeah. Um, With the unicorns. I think that would be my bottom of these so far. Um, But I liked it. I think that it's a good watch, and I think you have to watch it under the right mindset, which is why I said be highly inebriated during it um watch it with a good sound system and watch it in the dark mm-hmm. those are my three things to go forward with it uh but i i thoroughly enjoyed this movie it's one of my favorite disney's um it's always been that way i'm gonna give it not much higher than that i'm gonna give it a six out of eight pizza slices okay nice so we're we're pretty close yeah. um but i i do enjoy this film a lot 
And um, I did reconvene and say to myself, we should have watched Roger Rabbit instead. (laughs) There's plenty of time for that. I know we still got like 40 episodes to go, but (laughs) what are you going to do about that? Um, While we sign off, Matt, uh, while you prepare your hint, is there anywhere that we can find you on social media? Yeah, you can find me um, seeking out uh, some hippo tail and some elephant uh, heads. (laughs) Yeah, elephant. Hey, there we go. That's better than what I said. (laughs) Elephant trunk. And um, you can find me fucking up some dinosaurs as well. And you can fuck you can fuck with me uh, bringing in some dewdrops, and Ooh. you could um, you could catch me wading away evil spirits and singing happy birthday. I mean, I, I mean, Ave Maria. <laughs> happy birthday. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that was natural. I don't know why I said that. And you could Ooh. catch me uh, being a shape and a color. Okay. <laughs> um, you can find me, Jonathan Kwiatkowski, at Losing My Mind JK on Instagram, Drink and Read JK on Twitter. You can follow my other podcast, Anime Was Not a Mistake, where we're watching the best anime, the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, currently on movie uh, four on Stranger Tides as of tomorrow. I highly advise you check that out. Our episodes run long, but we've got. So many deets to dish on that podcast. I love it so much. Is that when they started becoming unprofitable? Oh my god. Pirates of the Caribbean 4 is like one of the worst movies at all time. And I cannot wait to watch it tomorrow. Oh boy. It's going to be a time. It's going to be a a ecstatic little trip. Um, Matt, you got any hints for your next pick? And you can catch me... Uh... Knocking over chimes and tuning my timpanies. Yeah, that too. So, um, summer is sadly coming to a close. Uh, summer, I hardly knew her. Really? This is the worst summer ever. Oh yeah, very much so. Um, we've, um, I know for the past few months now, I've been dealing in themes of isolation. And, you know, summer is not typically really about that. Summer is about adventure and just having a good time and uh, adventure. So uh, my next film, the hint I'm going to give is Isolation. Again? Isolation. Oh, no. Yep. All right, you bunch of movie-loving booze hounds, it's last call. You heard me, last call. What do you mean? Who do you think you are? It's me, Jonathan Kwiatkowski, your resident nightcaps at the theater co-host, bartender, movie podcast curator, and pretentious cinema snob. Nightcaps at the theater, yeah, that's right. Oh, you heard of it? Well then, friend, let me top you off. It's thanks to people like you that this little show of ours can make it into the final reel week to week. How else could Mark fund his Funko Pop addiction? Or Matt create a new internet handle every episode to avoid the FBI? We can't thank you lovelies enough, but why not keep the party going? 
Do you want to have a conversation on campy cult classics, question foreign flicks, or massacre movie monstrosities? Then look no further. Reach out to us on social media. You can follow our humble little podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Nightcap Cinema. And if you aren't listening to us on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, whatever, and rating, reviewing, and for goodness sake, subscribing, well then, we might have to tell Aunt Ida to put some cha-cha heels on to kick your ass. I think I talked your ear off enough, though. But put that wall away. This last nightcap is on us.